Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. What's the best way to get there? If you've been a driver for any length of time, you've asked that question. Uh, I actually don't ask that question. I say, what's the address of the place I'm supposed to be? Uh, but you ask, you ask that question, what's the best way to get there when you open up your Maps app and plug in a destination? You can toggle the switch on to avo- avoid tolls or avoid highways. I don't know why you would want to avoid highways, but it's on there. You choose a route based on which is the fastest or which has the fewest miles or the fewest turns. We want to know the best way. We're on our way somewhere. Your life is progressing towards certain outcomes. Uh, Your life is on a trajectory right now. If you're a Christian, the Lord has placed you on his highway of holiness. And in the end, you will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and united with him in eternity. As we go, we participate and cooperate with him. At least we should be. That's what the Lord wants. And when we don't, it causes a lot of problems. In Ephesians, Paul shows us the best way to go. And it's more than just his opinion or just one way of doing things. What we're reading here are commands from heaven. Paul knows what he's talking about. He was inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, to deliver the very word of God to the Ephesians and to us. On top of that, he also lived out one of the most powerful testimonies ever recorded. Paul knows the way to get there the best way to get there, the only way to get there. And the best way is to walk like a wise man. Verse 15, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. For the fifth and final time, Paul talks about walking in this letter. Walk worthy. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. And now, Pay careful attention to how you walk. Your version may say to walk circumspectly. That's not really a term we use very often in day-to-day speech. Bible dictionaries will tell you that the word he's using here means to walk more exactly, more accurately, more precisely, with more thorough investigation. Hearing that, does that make you feel overwhelmed? Uh, Like now I have to you know, take a microscope to every single thing that I do, every single word that I say, every single choice that I make, as if we need to walk absolutely perfectly every moment of every day. Well, the truth is God does call us to a very high standard, right? You should be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's, that's the standard. And the Lord calls us and commands us as king because He is in the position of authority over our lives and over this earth and because he wants what's best for you and knows what's best for you. And so there is a high standard that we're called to. But of course, our Lord is a God of grace. We've seen that throughout this letter. And we know that we are not going to walk perfectly. But let's be reminded of this. You and I as Christians have everything we need 
to walk in power and victory, to be bearing all sorts of spiritual fruit as we go. No matter our circumstances, no matter our background, uh, no matter the obstacles we face, we have everything we need because it is God that does the work in us. It is God that progresses our lives, develops our spirituality. It's the work he began and he is going to complete. Our part is to participate, to join him, to follow him, to cooperate with what he's doing by his own empowering. And so we have what we need. And at the same time, we're in this section of Ephesians where we're being told very, very plainly and very directly that what we do matters. The choices you make in life matter. The words you say, the actions you take, your behavior, your conduct, it matters. Paul's been reminding us of how important our life choices are. Our words and our conduct and our perspectives and our attitudes, our relationships, they really matter. They matter to God and they matter to us, to our lives, because they lead to outcomes and consequences in our lives. The, the things that we do, the steps that we take as we walk through life or walk with the Lord, they impact our families and our church and our community and our friendships and our coworkers. On top of that, we've learned that our walk, the way we live life can please God or it can grieve God. We need to pay careful attention to our lives, not just stumble through as life happens to us. Don't let life just happen to you. God has too much intention and too much purpose and too much grace for you for life to just happen to you. He has planned out wonderful things for your life before the earth was created. He saw through time and he saw you individually and loved you and, and made plans for you and had intentions for you and was excited about what he wanted to do in and through your life. So then when we just let life happen to us, kind of just get swept forward in our circumstances or just kind of think what other people tell us to think or do what other people are doing and seems good, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of what God has made you to be and all the plans and intentions that he has for you. So here in this verse, Paul says, walk like the wise men. And you know, the truth is, for tonight, we can actually look at the Christmas wise men as an example of some of the principles Paul is teaching us in this passage. In Matthew chapter two, when Herod spoke to the wise men, he said to them, go and search carefully for the child. And he used the very same term that Paul uses here for walking carefully. He says, pay careful attention. And so there's this little connection here. And we wanna think about the wise men as they were walking on their journey to meet the Lord. Uh, such great examples to us of faith and faithfulness and following the Lord and kind of merge it with Paul, what Paul is telling us here and apply it to ourselves. As the wise men traveled, they did not have all the answers. Remember, they get to Jerusalem and they're like, where are we supposed to go? Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They didn't know all the answers to all the questions they had. They didn't know exactly what they would encounter, but they followed the light that they had received, and in the end, there was Jesus. In the end, they were in his presence and able to offer him worship and, and to spend time with him. They weren't overwhelmed by the difficulty or the doubt or the obstacles on the road. In fact, the thing they were overwhelmed by, Matthew tells us, is that they were overwhelmed with joy when they saw the star. 
right? So they're following the star on this journey, not knowing exactly where to go, but they pressed on step by step in faith. And as they did, they were overwhelmed with joy. And now we as Christians are to follow the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ, follow after him. And as we follow that star, we don't know all the obstacles. We don't know all the turns. We don't all know all the situations we're gonna face. We don't know how long the trip is gonna be. Uh, we don't know where we might be waylaid, those sorts of things, but we know in the end we're going to be in the presence of Jesus, and so we should be overwhelmed with joy as we go. And so we're to walk as the wise and pay a careful attention as we're living. You know, normally we don't pay a lot of attention to routes we've taken many times over. Um, have you ever, you know, gotten home from work and not really remembered your drive home? Did I run that stop sign or not? Right? <laughs> That's happened to me, right? I'm guessing it's happened to some of you. Uh, but things that we do all the time, we don't pay really close, careful attention. We don't pull out the Maps app when you're driving from church to home or from work to home. I know how to get there. And so there's sort of a, a autopilot cruise control inattention that we're able to ease back into on those well-tread routes. But we don't want to develop that sort of inattention, that sort of... Um, uh, sit back mentality in our spiritual lives. Paul calls us to attention and precision even when we're living just the regular day-to-day -day Christian life. After all, we learned last time we're meant to be testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Looking at my life, looking at the things I'm doing, the things I'm thinking, the things I'm saying, the opportunities I have and saying, okay, what's gonna please the Lord? I need to test it. I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. We're meant to be paying attention and um, stepping on purpose, right? Moving past simply knowing things about God or knowing things about Jesus and stepping into actually doing something with what we know. Verse 16 says, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Psalm 90 tells us that we develop wisdom in our hearts by numbering our days. And so this is interesting. It's like, you need to walk as the wise. How do we do that? Well, one way you do that is to number your days We've talked about this in a previous passage in Ephesians. We see it again here, making the most of the time. As we focus on the days that we have, the times in which we live, we're able to develop wisdom in our hearts. Now, your Bible may say redeeming the time, and that's, that's good. This is an economic term. The phrase means to buy up time like a shopper finding a great bargain in the marketplace. How do I do that? One commentary puts it this way gobbling up every available opportunity. That's sort of the sense of what Paul is saying. He says, gobble up the opportunities that you have as you walk with the Lord because the days are evil. Did you know that we live in the land of opportunity? I don't mean economic opportunity. That was for previous generations of Americans. Just kidding. Sorry, young people. Anyway, but we live in the land of opportunity. We live in the land of spiritual opportunity. Right? We look around, especially right now, and we're horrified and disgusted by the evil around us, the proliferation of wickedness, the open sin and corruption all in the world and in our own culture. It's upsetting. It's frustrating. It's disgusting, right? And then our natural inclination as people who want to be separated out unto the Lord, our natural inclination is to say, well, let's flee somewhere where it's less evil. Let's flee somewhere where things aren't so bad according to the measurements that are important to me. 
But that sort of removing ourselves to another place is not always the best choice for God's people. It's not always what the Lord wants us to do because light is most effective in the dark, right? Rescuers are most necessary where there are people who need to be rescued. I don't want all of the trauma surgeons to live on a resort island somewhere where no one gets hurt, right? I I want them where the people are, where the trauma is, where their work is necessary. What did Jesus say? He said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Pastor Ray Steadman once said this, most of us look at evil days as obstacles, as defeating circumstances, as pressures which tend to make us unable to be Christians. But evil days create opportunities, and therefore we must make the most of those opportunities which are created by evil days. And so we don't have to be afraid of those things. We don't have to pretend like they're not happening, but we should see like, okay, I have an opportunity here to be light in the dark, to be salt in a, in a lost and dying world. I have the chance to do the Christian thing because I live in a world that is desperately unchristian. So let me show you what it's like to be a child of God. Let me show you what it's like to not be mastered by sin and Satan. Let me show you what it's like to have joy and peace and satisfaction even when the world system is corrupt, even when the world system is against me, even when these other circumstances look this way or that way. Now, hearing this verse, we might feel pressured again. Okay, I guess God wants me to keep a stopwatch and a ledger of every minute I spend today. Well, one out of every three minutes I spent asleep. I better cut that down to two hours a day, right? I have to buy up the time. God's gonna be mad at me if I don't do enough on my spiritual time card. But that's not what Paul means. And it's not the way we're supposed to feel. In fact, Paul specifically used the Greek term kairos, not chronos. Linguists explain that chronos refers to specific amounts of time. Kairos means the right time, the opportune time, the appointed time. Listen, God's the one that put Paul in jail for years. You can sit in jail for years and years at a time. That's the best use of your time, the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist to ever live, right? Now, we're glad because he's writing these prison letters and they reach through history and through every generation and through every culture, right? But I'm guessing that even Paul was saying, really, another year in jail when I could be out preaching, when I could be out you know, healing people, when I could be out doing this, that, or the other thing. And the Lord said, yeah, the best use of your time, the best way for Paul the apostle to buy up the time in this year is to sit shackled to Roman guards and write some letters to some people he's never met. And so this is about the opportune time, the appointed time. As we walk, we pay careful attention to the opportunities around us to be Christians to be lights in the dark, to be conduits of grace, to be broadcasters of truth, to be ambassadors of Christ's love. When you're on the hunt, if you're a garage sailor, if you go to garage sales, when you're on the hunt for a deal at a garage sale, you don't buy every item you see. You're gonna come home with a lot of trash if you do that. You don't buy every item you see, you buy the right items, the ones that are opportune, the the best deals. And so that's the idea about, about redeeming the time just thinking about how the Lord is leading us and thinking about what he has provided and the opportunities he's bringing us and the people he's bringing into our path. 
and, and learning to have a spiritual sensitivity for how he's leading the appointments that he has made that you don't know about. The wise men didn't drive their camels around the clock, right? They didn't go 24 hours a day, but they cared a lot about progress. Now, we don't have a ledger of every single you know, day of their trip, but obviously they cared a lot about making progress in the right direction. They had to keep pace with this light that was leading them to Bethlehem. Around the campfire, they didn't say, it doesn't matter if we get off track tomorrow. It doesn't matter if we just go way over. No, they, they cared very much but also they were pacing themselves and following as the light led them. And so they had a focus and a goal and did the work. They watched the path, they read the terrain, they kept an eye on their supplies, they made sure they weren't going in circles, but, but they also were doing the regular sort of, okay, we can't go 24 hours a day. We, we, hey, we can't really make it up this mountain, we're gonna have to go around, those sorts of things. Right, so that's the walk of faith that we're kind of putting in as a picture in our minds. Verse 17, so don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. What is the Lord's will? We ask that a lot, often thinking, okay, well, what is the will of God in my life? What career should I have? What spouse should I marry? Where should we live? Those sorts of things. And those are really good and needful questions to ask and to have answered by the Lord. He has an opinion about all of those things. But God's word reveals a lot about God's will right here, right now, and it concerns who you are supposed to be more than it does the things you are supposed to do in your personal sort of trajectory of your life, right? Here's what I mean. It is God's will to make you like himself. It is God's will for you to do good. It is his will for you to avoid sexual immorality. It is his will for you to bring praise to his glory. It is his will for you to give thanks in all circumstances. More on that specifically in a few moments. So we know enough of God's will to fill our days. So there are big things that you need to settle with the Lord. If you're not married, Lord, do you want me to get married? And then if, if the answer is yes, okay, well, Lord, who do you want me to get married to? For those of you looking for jobs, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with the life that you've given me? Do you want, to go, you want me to go into this career or this avenue? What, what do you desire? Where do you want to scatter me so I can be light and in the dark and you know, the salt of the earth, those sorts of things. But meanwhile, we have enough of God's will from in the word of God to just fill our days up. As we say, okay, how can I fulfill the will of God by bringing praise to his glory, by sharing in his divine nature? We talked about that from um, 2 Peter last time. How can I fill up my life with the will of God, which is to walk in purity and to preach the gospel and those sorts of things? And so as we walk in God's will, which we know a lot about, we then discover the good works prepared beforehand. We discover the path that he has carved out for us individually. We discover those things that are personal to us in our relationship with him. But here's the contrast. He says, don't be a fool, be wise. Don't walk with the world, walk with the Lord. This has been his theme, Paul's theme throughout these passages we've been in, where he's contrasting the way of the Gentiles, the way of the Lord. Don't walk the way of the Gentiles, walk the way of the Lord. Don't be foolish, be wisdom, uh, uh, be wise and follow the Lord's will. Foolish here is a term that means senseless, 
The Greeks used it to describe a crazed, frantic person. That's going to come into play in a moment here. It also may describe someone with a petrified heart. And so Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be a crazed, hard-hearted Gentile pagan. Be wise in the wisdom of the Lord and walk with him. The truth is, this is another comparison to the cult of Dionysus that we've mentioned before. This is one of the very popular, prominent mystery cults in the Roman Empire and in the city of Ephesus, one that many of these Ephesians probably had come out of, or some of them may have still been a part of at the time of hearing this letter. The cult of Dionysus had all these weird, strange, wild, perverse rituals uh, that the people in the cult and the Gentile Roman world thought were very normal and were just the tops, right? And, and in one of those rituals, the initiation ritual, the people would walk up a mountain and, and they would do so in the Dionysus gate, which involves staggered walker, walking, flipping your head backward, loud chanting, strange, perverse songs, all while you were like hammered drunk. And then at the top, there was all kinds of really weird stuff that can't be talked about in mixed company. And so Paul said, hey, listen, don't be crazed uh, because that's foolish. You, you think it's normal because you were part of the cult of Dionysus and that was your culture, but I'm telling you that life with the Lord is completely different from that. Don't be crazed. Be wise. To live in this wild way is ungodly. And he's been talking about, right, in these verses, our speech and uh, the things we do with our body and the way we relate to others. He says, hey, listen, there is godliness and ungodliness, and ungodliness is incompatible with Christian living. It's incompatible with Christianity. Verse 18 says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. So Dionysus was a god of wine and drunkenness and insanity, among other things. I don't know you needed a god of insanity, but there he is. How convenient. And that's why in their rituals, the, the members of the cult of Dionysus would act insane in this weird, intoxicated ecstasy. Plato suggested in his Republic that Dion, Dionysian festivals were symbolic of the joys of the afterlife. And so again, we just keep, you know, we're not first century Ephesians, and so a lot of this is lost on us, but under, try to put yourself in their position. You're an Ephesian. You're part, you were part of the cult of Dionysus. Maybe you still are. And maybe you're wondering, well, yeah, I, this, this Jesus thing seems interesting, and he sounds a lot like Dionysus, the uh, son of, uh, of a, a father who's God and a mother who's mortal, and he died and came back to life. And so, uh, yeah, you know, maybe I can blend these things together. Maybe I can continue in my heritage as a, you know, a Roman uh, mystery cultist. And also, I, I'm hearing this great truth about Jesus of Nazareth, and maybe we can blend these things together. But now Paul is coming here and he says, no, 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 no. It's completely separate. It's completely different. All of these things are the opposite of Christianity. And, and, and here you have Plato saying in his writings, no, going to, man, a Dionysus ritual, that's like being in heaven. Being, doing all this weird stuff, that's like, like the afterlife. That's as good as it gets. One scholar writes, to live a riotous, wanton, debauched, drunken life was characterized as the Dionysian mode of life. Like, that's the way I live. 
I'm, I'm a good Roman. I'm a good Dionysian. I, I, this is my mode of life. And Paul says, yeah, and it's foolish and it's wasteful and there, it's fruitless and it's, and it's ruin and it leads to death. So he's putting these things in such sharp contrast. And Paul says, this is not, that is not the way to live. That's a good way to waste your life and a good way to die forever. Reckless is the opposite of careful, right? So Paul says, no, no, not reckless living, careful living. The mystery cults were the opposite of what the church should be. The mystery cult was about excess and perversion and personal gratification and liberating yourself from, you know, like uh, social limitations. The church is about a family growing together in love and understanding and harmony where we build one another up, not exploiting one another, and that we do so under the controlled direction of a true and loving God who fills us with power and grace and kindness and truth. You couldn't have two religions that were more different. Your Bible may say being drunk leads to dissipation. Man, if circumspectly is a word we don't use, dissipation is one we really don't use. The term means riotous or wasteful. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you remember the parable of the prodigal son, and it talks about he lived, he went out in riotous living or dissipation. And so what the prodigal son did before he came back to the father, that's dissipation, reckless living. It leads to the pig pen, leads to absolute ruin, absolute emptiness, absolute uh, filth and, and sorrow. The truth is, though, intoxication was a major part of Roman life. Pagan Gentiles viewed drunkenness as a means of unity with the spiritual world. And so, again, Christianity is totally different than the human culture in which it finds itself. Completely different from the Ephesian culture, completely different from the Roman culture, completely different from the American culture. It is its own thing, and it is not natural, and it is not what we would come up with on our own. We're not to be out of control. We're to be self-controlled and spirit-controlled. We're not to be filled with toxins and chemicals that bring out the worst in us. We're to be filled by the spirit. Now, literally there, the words say, be filled in spirit. And contextually, Paul has been talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, but we're to be filled with the things of God, filled with the the word of God and the grace of God and the peace of God and the character of God, his divine nature that we share in. That's what we're to fill ourselves with day by day. And Paul's words here are that we Christians are to go on being filled in the spirit. Most of you have probably heard that before in a Bible study. That's what he says, go on being filled perpetually in your spirit by the spirit. A person filled full of the Lord should show the effects of his presence in a similar way, a drunken person certainly demonstrates the presence of alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean we act the same. Like the whole point of this whole section is that, no, 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 you don't act the same. But he's, he's pointing to this wicked, disgusting culture and he says, okay, you guys are coming out of this religion where you think drunkenness and weird perverse ecstasy and acting insane makes you connected with God The opposite is true. You're going to be filled with the Spirit, and the effects of being filled with the Spirit are self-control and truth. You becoming uh, the image of God, not you becoming the worst version of yourself, right? And so, but, but people should be able to look at us 
and see the effects of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not because we're doing strange things or outlandish things, but as they evaluate us, say, I can tell that that person is being impacted by that which fills them, right? In the way that you can look at a person who's staggering around drunk and you can say, I don't know what you drank, but I know you drank something. You know, I, I don't know if it was this, that, or the other thing, but you're drunk, right? And so we should be showing the filling of God, the spirit and his truth and his character and his nature. And so his words here, go on being filled. And the question then is, okay, so if the Lord wants to fill us with his truth, are we people of truth? If he wants to fill us with joy, are we people who are joyful? Are we spiritually exuberant because we're excited about the Lord, who's an exciting God of grace and mercy and kindness? Or are we kind of emotionally dead about our relationship with God? You know, if, if we're not excited at all about our relationship with Jesus and the work that he's doing in our lives, I think there's a pretty big disconnect with the Jesus who's revealed on the pages of scripture and the Jesus who says, here's the things I wanna start doing in your life. Man, read the first three chapters of Ephesians again and it, it's almost impossible to not get excited. You think, really, really, that's us? That, that's, that's, what, that's the plan? That's what I got brought into as a Christian? And so is there any sort of joy or exuberance? Now, as for alcohol, Paul does not say you can't drink it. Would have been very convenient for him to do so right here. But the Bible is really clear that it does, it does want us to be careful about ingesting things that can inebriate us. It is a sin for a Christian to be drunk or high. It just is. The Bible says it multiple times. And as people who are Christians and who are called to a life of wisdom and understanding and godliness, we need to take the warnings about alcohol to heart because the Bible doesn't say you can't drink, but it does warn us a lot about drink. Here's one simple pull out uh, you know, verse, Hosea 4, 11. Promiscuity, wine, and new wine take away one's understanding. Okay, that's a pretty in-your-face warning because we're to be people who are full with understanding. Paul says, man, my prayer for you is that you'd be filled full with understanding. And then he comes along and says, hey, some of these things will take away your understanding. And so we just need to pay careful attention to how we're walking. And does the Lord actually give me liberty, me personally, for this, this activity, for this product, for this whatever? That's something that you need to settle with the Lord, understanding that the standard is, it is always sin for a Christian to be drunk, or high or intoxicated in those ways. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Are these things ways that we fill ourselves with the Spirit or are they the result of being filled with God the Holy Spirit? The truth is you can make a case either way. So if we are Spirit-filled, we're gonna be a singing, worshiping people. And if we want to be filled full, then we will be a singing, worshiping people, right? You wanna fill yourself with the fullness of God? Start singing and worshiping the Lord. Are you a person filled full of God, the Holy Spirit? One of the effects of that is that you're gonna be a singing, worshiping person. After all, we individually, but especially corporately, are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit. And what happens in a temple? Praise and prayer and offering and thanksgiving. The lifting of worship and, and as a sacrifice to the Lord. We learn here that our singing of godly songs has two audiences, the Lord and each other. 
As you come into church and sing the praises of Jesus, it blesses him as he receives it, but also the people around you are able to witness his goodness, to see your faith in action, to hear a testimony coming off of your lips. You know, here on Wednesday nights, we love having the kids in at the beginning because we're able to show our kids, show the next generation that when we come to church, we don't just sit there with fish mouths and apathetic hearts. Oh, is this the music part? I'm just gonna sit here silent, who cares, right? But that we adore God and that we magnify his name and his greatness, that we thank him and for his love and for the things that he's done and still doing. And we show the, the people around us, I believe and I praise God. That is a way of you delivering testimony of God's goodness. Marcus Barth writes, Early Christian congregations were singing, jubilant, exalting assemblies. They were writing songs and going back to the Psalms and singing them. They were chanting stuff. A few Sundays ago, our pastor challenged us to be people who just start writing little verses, writing little songs about the Lord. It's said that Charles Wesley wrote 6,000 hymns during the Wesleyan revival. They're not all good, <laughs> right? Nobody writes 6,000 really good songs. David, the sweet psalm of Israel, like wrote 70, right? My favorite is that at one point, song of the Solomon is, we're told he wrote over a thousand songs. Yeah, well, two of them made it into the Bible. So, so it's not about like a volume thing, but man, we see that Wesley, he was just a worshiping Christian. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul indicated that everyone was coming to church with a new hymn that they wrote. Now, in their case, they were doing the activity of church selfishly. I have a hymn. No, I have a hymn. But, but it's interesting. They were coming to church. And they said, I, I wrote a hymn this week. Yeah, me too. Wow. Just developing worship because it's an important thing. It's supposed to be our mode of life. We speak these songs to each other. And it says that we make music to one another. Your version may say making melody. Now, our friends at the Church of Christ will cite this verse as a proof text that churches should not have instruments in their worship. The fact of the matter is the term Paul used here for making music or making melody originally meant pluck a string or even twang. I love it, right? So he says, hey, so pluck a string to one another, the goodness of God. So do they still have those dumb commercials? Are you gelling like gelling like Magellan? I'm old, sorry, young people. It was a dumb commercial, but we, let's be, we're not gelling, let's be a twanging people. You twanging today? We're gonna twang. We're gonna twang the praises of God. Let's make it our business to show our kids, show our brothers and sisters, show the world around us the power of songs sung unto the Lord. How that is a testimony, how that is a act of gratitude, how that is a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always for everything. Wow. Paul can't actually mean that, can he? It can't be done. That's what I think. And what did Paul say in Philippians? He said, oh, it can be done. He said, I have learned how to do this. He says, I've learned how to be content in every circumstance. See, the high schools and the colleges, they always pull out Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But verses 11 and 12 are where he's saying, oh, I've learned how to be content in every circumstance when I have nothing and when my circumstances are terrible. 
and when everything is awful and I should be complaining in my human heart, but I've learned how to be content and grateful to the Lord. Complaining is a cancer to the spiritual life. We've seen so many examples of this in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. The Lord warns us about complaining in our hearts so many times. It's not because he's tired of hearing it, it's because it's bad for us. Can you imagine the wise men complaining on their road to Bethlehem about the dust, about the turns, about the length? If, we, if they did, we'd be like, stop it. You're about to see Jesus face to face and be part of one of the most glorious stories of all time. Are you kidding me? We see the disciples complaining in the gospels. We think, stop it. Don't you realize what a wonderful story you're a part of? Don't you want, realize that you're in the presence of God himself? We need to convince ourselves that when we complain, we're not complaining about the stone in our shoe, meaning our circumstances. That complaining is the stone in the shoe. We get upset about our circumstances and we get frustrated and complain. That's natural, but Christ calls us to supernatural. He doesn't call us to the human nature, the way of the Gentiles. He calls us to his nature. Complaining is the problem and it causes damage down the line. It chokes out thankfulness, just like thankfulness cancels out complaining. But when we walk away from thankfulness, it has a very impact on us. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter one. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So there we are. We're back to wisdom and foolishness. We're back to gratitude versus uh, not gratitude. So walking in wisdom means giving thanks always for everything. Circumstances will not always be good, but God is always good and we can always be thankful. Paul wrote that letter while chained to a Roman soldier well, for a crime he didn't commit. And he had been sitting there for years and he wrote that to us and he said, I can do it. And that means that we can do it too because it's God who does it in us. And it's just whether we are willing to cooperate with what he wants to do. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Submitting is a military term, meaning to rank under. A Christian is to think of others more highly than he does himself. In Roman culture, servility was not a virtue. Paul keeps commanding countercultural things in these passages. There aren't status levels in God's church. We're all brothers and sisters. There may be roles and assignments, some of which we'll see in the coming passages, but we all have equal standing in the Lord's family and churches should always behave as if that's true. But how does it work if everyone is submitting to each other all the time, right? If everybody's submitting, then like, then, you know, if everybody submits to each other before walking through the door, nobody gets through the door. So who goes first? Who goes second? It helps me to think of back on the wise men one more time. Sometimes they, tra you know, as they traveled, I'm sure that I'm guessing sometimes they walked side by side. And in some cases, one of them was out front. And during another stretch, that same guy might be bringing up the rear. But they were all going together. They were going as one. It was one group. It was one journey. It was one trip together. And depending on the terrain or the experience and the way the thing shook out, maybe one would be leading, another would be following for a while, or they would be pushing a wagon over a hill together, or they would be scouting out a resting spot. It was a harmonious unity, a group effort. It wasn't about status. It wasn't about who was in front or who was in back. One commentator writes this, submission describes the placing of oneself in response to another or to something. 
We are called to walk attentively, responding to each other, responding to the Lord's leading with the Lord's fullness. We're called to make the most of these days, knowing that this road we're on leads us to the presence of the Messiah. That's where we're headed. Biblical Christianity in action is not only the best way to get there, it's the only way to get there. So let's get going together, singing as we go.